Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Work With Purpose, a podcast about the Australian public service. My name's David Pembroke. Thank you for joining me. Today, we speak to Cheryl Ann Moy, another senior Australian public servant with a lot on her plate. As a Deputy Secretary, Cheryl Ann's day job is managing the seven divisions in the Federal Department of Home Affairs that deal with corporate capability, not only for the department, but the Australian border force. During her career in the APS, Cheryl Ann has managed many large and high-profile programs, including regional processing, children in immigration, ministerial and parliamentary entitlements, and social welfare programs in key areas, including retirement, rural, regional areas, and employment. Prior to joining the Australian Public Service, Cheryl Ann had a successful career in banking, finance and fraud investigations. As part of her responsibilities in helping the response of the APS to the COVID-19 pandemic, Cheryl has played a key role in contributing to a number of task forces, including the National COVID-19 Coordination Committee and the Chief Operating Officer Committee. Cheryl Ann joins me from her office at the Department of Home Affairs. Cheryl Ann, welcome to Work With Purpose. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. Listen, before we get into COVID-19, in the introduction, I mentioned that you did once work in the private sector in banking and, and finance and fraud investigations. What drew you into a career in the public service? Um, it's, it was quite interesting. So I always consider that I, I worked in a in a public service environment. I was always facing clients, and um, actually, after my uh, first daughter was born, I made the decision to take some time off. And then, when I uh, was looking at what I was wanting to do in the future, I decided to join the public service in the regional office in Redcliffe in Queensland. Okay. And what was your first job in the APS? My first job was processing unemployment claims with Department of Social Security at uh, Redcliffe Regional Office and um, progressed from there to many other parts of the organisation. So you really started at a, as an entry level, really, into the APS? I started as an APS1. <laughs> wow. And what are your memories of that time back as an APS1 in the Redcliffe office? Um, look, they're great memories. It was a, a great team to work for I and, and work with. I learnt so much about uh, working with a, a team that's supporting people who are at their most vulnerable. And I also learnt a lot about managing um, not only the clients but also staff. So it's invaluable lessons and, um, you know, something I recommend to everyone to be able to work in many different areas and get lots of different varied experience. It, it unlocks a lot of uh, potential in people. I certainly think, and I, I think Carmel McGregor told me, uh, you know, great stories of the past sort of in the era of, uh, I think it was Sue Varden, where she used to make even the senior executives go and spend time in the offices so as that they could, could see um, what the sorts of stresses and worries and concerns that people were, were coming in with. Is, is that your memory of that time? That is, well, that is exactly my memory. I worked with Carmel and with Sue in Centrelink and uh, I was always um, absented from those, those types of arrangements because I had actually come from the, um, from the network and understood how it worked and had worked in so many different areas 
in both South Australia and Queensland in, in the Department of Social Security and Centrelink. So I was lucky I didn't have to go back out and do those, but I did spend a lot of time going back out and updating my knowledge and keeping abreast of what the issues were at the front line because that's why we're here to support them. Yes. 80% of our 80% of our people were serving the people at the front line and our job was to make sure that they were able to do that the best possible way within the government policy that we were serving. So how did you feel on that day most recently when the uh, announcements were made around the various payments and and you, you saw those big lines out in front of the various Services Australia offices around Australia. How, how did that make you feel? Um, look, I, I felt for, for my colleagues at Services Australia, it's an um, unenviable position to be in to, to have uh, the most unemployment figures coming at you in such a short period of time and certainly unplanned. This, is, this wasn't something that um, was necessarily, a, uh, you know, something that we all saw in terms of the size of the impact. The... Um, I think the other issue is, of course, the first thing we, we all did in the, in the coup committee was turned around and said, how many people can we uh, get ready to be able to go over and, and help Services Australia process those claims so that people got their money as soon as possible that they were entitled to? And right down to one of my support staff was uh, um, a, a very junior staff member. He was uh, very nervous, but he was packed over to Services Australia. He's only just come back today. And uh, so he spent quite a few weeks over there and loved the experience, enjoyed it, and, and actually said he, he grew so much he was quite surprised. He was very, very nervous on his first day, but by the end of it he was processing claims, talking to people on the phone, um, and they did a great job in training him and, and acquitting him to do that job. What sort of impact do you think that this mobility of the APS staff, and particularly um, those staff members who have had the opportunity to serve in the various call centres. Um, we had Catherine Campbell on uh, a couple of weeks ago, a couple of programs ago, and she, you know, she was reflecting about, you know, the collegiality and, and that real sense of, of service amongst uh, the people who had that opportunity. Do you think it will have a lasting impact as people do return to their uh, their normal day jobs? I think it will. I think you can't undo the experience that people have got. And as I said earlier, one of the, the best things you can do is work outside of your comfort zone. It increases your confidence. It increases your ability to confront the next tackle or tackle the next issue. It, uh, it gives you resilience. I don't think that anything will be lost from people having done that. And, you know, there's 145,000 of us approximately across Australia that every day we turn up to work and we all pull in the same direction um, is no mean feat. Like it's it's a um, it's a great effort for the Australian Public Service every single day. But when these sorts of things happen and you see people rise to that level of being uh, even more collaborative than um, sometimes they need to be, uh, people went out of their way to assist people to be able to do their jobs and to be able to serve Australians and and get. Uh, get people the entitlements they need. It, it is um, one of those things that you become a public servant for, to be, yeah. able, to, to, to be able to deliver those sorts of services in, in times of good and times of crisis. And, and I do wonder whether or not there, there will be also those additional benefits where friendships will be made that wouldn't have been made otherwise, where people will know each other and over, over time come to 
you know, no trust, respect, and as they come around, that that'll be that'll be a, an experience that will they'll they'll have forever. It, it absolutely, and it will it will cause some people to reconsider what they might have thought um, about their own career. They might have thought that what they're doing now is what they can do, whereas they now have different avenues open to them. They know they can do different things. They know they can take different challenges and move out of their comfort zone. So, the ability for people to put their hand up now and say, I actually might go over and work in Services Australia. It's not something I might have ever thought of before, but I'll go work there for three or four years and get that experience and take it back to the, for example, in our space, they bring it back into a national security and immigration environment. Um, it, it, it is a tremendous gain to the organisation for people to bring those skills back into, into home affairs and be able to apply them to their uh, current roles or to other roles that they decide they want to move to. Now, you're a, a key member of the Chief Operating Officer Committee and we did have Catherine Jones, the chair of that committee, on the program uh, a few weeks ago. Is, is one of the issues that you're discussing how do we sustain things or, or you know, that mobility in the APS, in the workforce? Is, is, that, is that something that you're actively looking at at this point in time? It is. So mobility is always uh, an issue. There's um, There's been legacy issues around people thinking that mobility is about moving people around who might not be particularly good at their jobs where they are. Um, and it, it so is not about that. Mobility is a critical process to ensure that the public service is able to respond during these periods of time. If, if you look at any of the deputies and the FAS and the assistant secretaries, who have taken the COVID-19 response and run with it. All of them have varied experience. They've worked in lots of different departments. They've taken different functions. They've worked in policy programs, delivery. They push themselves outside of their comfort zone to be able to learn new skills and harness those for, for when they need them in new jobs. And each one of those brought those that skill set to the coup committee and the coup committee's done a, a fabulous job in a very short period of time. I'm looking forward to what we can do during a, a new normal period in terms of some strategic work, and one of those will be around mobility. But the more we have people who have varied experience across the public service, the better yeah. we have. Yeah. So tell me, what is your sort of COVID-19 story in terms of, you know, when when was the day that it sort of struck you that this was going to be different and what were you doing at that time and what did you stop doing and what did you start doing very quickly? So back in early March, we um, we sort of went uh, what we would call uh, into to full COVID-19 response and that uh, was in regard to a, a few issues. So I suppose in terms of professionally, there was, the knowledge that we have Emergency Management Australia within our um, within our department. Management Australia deals with many things from bushfires to pandemics. On this occasion, um, to stand aside to the EMA, the Emergency Management Australia organisation, uh, the Prime Minister stood up the National Coordination Mechanism. And when he stood up the National Coordination Mechanism, we, we staffed that entirely from the department primarily and we also brought in staff from, from different departments, such as infra industry, infrastructure, Prime Minister and Cabinet, 
and the national coordination mechanism worked across industry, state government and territory governments to look at all of the issues that were being caused by the COVID-19 pandemic that were not health-related. So the good old issue of toilet paper on the shelves was one of the first things that the National Coordination Mechanism worked on. They worked with industry, they worked through supply chains. We had staff who um, had worked in many different areas, but I don't think in their entire career they thought they'd be <laughs> worrying about the supply chain of toilet paper to a Woolworths, Coles or an IGA or a Superbun. So... It was quite, it's quite interesting. And this, again, comes down to the experience people have being able to apply that to absolutely anything that, they, that they, can work, they have to work on. So the National Coordination Mechanism took about 300 of our staff and they um, worked with industry, state territories and worked to uh, fix things like supply chains. They worked on issues as issues were raised that were non-health related, that were about things happening in the community. They worked across many different sectors of education, law enforcement and policing, um, food, agriculture, transport, banking. They worked across a large um, sectors of industries to sort out issues that were happening in those industries, but also to provide um, that collaborative and collegiate uh, connections across all of the different layers of government and those industries. So they literally did coordinate um, more, I think, more than 70 formal discussions around different issues. And um, um, while you won't see a lot of the work that they did, the uh, night and day work um, did come to fruition in terms of decisions made around, um, you know, travel bans, um, different uh, restrictions around um, of how industry managed the uh, supply chains, lifting certain restrictions so trucks could travel at different hours of the night to get to um, the coals and woolies, those sorts of things. So about 300 people went into that. We also supported the um, National COVID Coordination Commission in Prime Minister and Cabinet. So I've got some staff over there who are supporting the commissioners. One of our secretaries... Oh, sorry, one of our secretaries... Our secretary is one of the one of the people on that commission. He provides support and advice into into the commission into, into Nev Power. So we've we've got that area supported. We've also provided around 100 and I think it's around 106 people to Services Australia, and we've also got people in Department of Health and one into APSC. So when when this happened, um, in terms of being identified as a as a pandemic. As, obviously the impact on the economy, the impact on uh, Australians in terms of health. Those, um, those triggers very quickly led to action across all of the APS and, and we were one of those. The, um, I think probably the, the most um, important thing about the coup committee is being able to pull together and deliver the level of consistency across departments and to create an environment of ease, if I'd use that word, um, which meant that all of the uh, department's contingency planning was similar in terms of the entitlements to staff. We were able to get ahead of the curve on questions and issues. We were able to share work that had already been done in one department, give it to another department, rebadge it. It was all the same. It was consistent which gave the APS a level of consistency and comfort 
that uh, things were moving forward in a in a very managed way, and and it was very managed. There was no panic. There was no um, uh, shrill voices. It was incredibly professional, and I really do look forward to what we can do in the uh, in the more strategic work. So I only see more good things coming out of the the coup committee. I'm really looking forward to the, uh, the work we can do there. It's interesting because, correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that the Chief Operating Officer Committee, the Coup Committee, was established really as as a strategic uh, uh, entity really to look at one APS and to take the government's response to the Thody review and to start to implement that. But pretty well as soon as it was stood up to undertake that work, it actually had to do this very operational work. Is, is that correct? Yes, yeah, so it is true. The, uh, commit, the coup committee was stood up under the Secretary's Committee to work with the Secretary's Committee on the implementation of APS reform and, and other um, issues that the Secretary's Committee wished to consider that were whole of government. Um, I think we, we had two face-to-face meetings before we very quickly um, uh, managed the online meeting arrangements, which have worked brilliantly. Uh, so those first two meetings face-to-face was, uh, was all we had. But, um, you know, the, the benefit of, um, of having a lot of good coups in the room from uh, large and small departments is that you get a, a good perspective of the entire picture of the APS. And uh, coups are used to moving very quickly and and doing what they need to do very quickly. So um, it was a great team to to stand up, and it was just perfect timing. Really, we we couldn't have been luckier with the timing that it was stood up earlier. But also a different role, quite you know quite a different role, isn't um, it? Really, because all of a sudden you're shifting into a very operational focus. Whereas the other, the original intended focus wasn't meant to be that at all. So the, the governance and the operating rules around it must have had to have been, you know, uh, stood up on the spot, so to speak. We're very flexible, very flexible. <laughs> it's, um, it's one of those. It's one of those things that um, the, the the governance and the terms of reference were um, were supportive of, of what we needed to do during COVID nineteen. So it was uh, set up quite flexibly to begin with. But the, um, the good thing is, again, the level of experience, um, which is why I'm, I'm um, passionate about staff at, as they come through the APS levels and the ES level, EL levels, getting as much experience as they can at their level and across government um, is, is critical because uh, if we'd had a group of coups sitting in that room who had all worked in their own department for 30 years um, and had not done other things it would have been a very different picture about how we could support the rest of the APS. But, um, but the, the skill sets in the room were, um, were amazing and we were able to very quickly uh, come to agreement and come to solutions for all of the issues that were put forward. And, and there was many of them, as you'd imagine, many of them as we were going through each day. I can, I can, I can only imagine there would have, you know, a very full agenda. I'm sure every day. Now, listen. One of the um, uh, parts of the program um, is that we take uh, questions uh, posed yep. by IPA's future leader, future leaders committee, and I have a question here from Deanne Allen from the Attorney General's Department, 
And her question to you is, the COVID-19 pandemic has resulted in large-scale change to business as usual across the public service. What are the main adjustments that younger or newer future leaders need to make to in order to make their best contribution? Okay. Um, so this might be a little bit repetitive, but um, I'll add to it a little bit. The most important thing is to understand the APS, not just your role or your department. Know what functions sit in other departments and be interested now. Don't be interested when there's a problem. Be interested every single day about what you can learn about the APS because it is a very big organisation. So get as much experience across the APS as you can, whether you're working in another department or working with other department colleagues. Keep those relationships that you've had while you've been working at Services Australia or in other places during COVID-19. Um, work with people on implementations. Don't be afraid to push yourself out of that comfort zone into new functions and understand everything from, from the different perspectives of policy, program and delivery. So sometimes people get set themselves into delivery or to program. You actually need to understand the full, the full uh, supply chain of what we provide to the Australian community. So when you need to lead through the unknown, the best base you can have is a varied one where you've worked outside your comfort zone, you've been a little bit nervous, but you know how to make the hard decisions and you know how to process and ask for information. So if you can do all that, it keeps you calm as a leader and it also helps your team be outcomes focused rather than be nervous themselves. So the calmer you are as a leader based on your experience and your um, the breadth of your experience and the depth of it, the better you, leader you'll be, the better your people will be. Very good advice. Okay, the next question is from Steph McLennan at Geoscience Australia. And she asks, uh, as a senior leader, how are you balancing asking a lot from your staff to deal with during the crisis while recognising that they are also going through huge upheaval and disruption? Uh, it's a really good question and it, it's very true. Everyone's going to have their COVID-19 story. Um, some people will have multiples of them. Um, and I think no matter what the issue is, it's really important to be aware of your staff's resilience and understand how resilient they are from um, from week to week. It's it's not a month-by-month -month proposition. Things happen in people's lives and it impacts them. So understanding their resilience and their personal work-life balance is really important. So for me, I have a fabulous and very committed group of FAS and support staff, and my support staff all worked from home during the um, the pandemic, and they still one of them has just come back to work today to, to do three days in the office. Um, and I think I have a fairly flexible approach, as do my FAS with their assistant secretaries. So outcomes for me are the most important thing. And whilst a lot of my FAS and my AS have children at home, they're doing remote learning, which must be making them pull their hair out. Um, and Or some of them are caring for someone who's at risk or they're at risk themselves because they've got asthma or, or those sorts of um, issues. All of them have continued to deliver and we keep an eye on each other about how we're going every day. So we do lots of communication. The value of communication can't be understated through times like this. I think our first rule at the beginning in corporate in terms of communicating with our, star, our broader group of staff was that communicate, communicate, and communicate, and when you think the message has got through, say it again. Because people are working remotely. 
distracted by different things. They've got other things on their mind. They might read it once and think they understand it, but the second time they might actually have more time to read it because they don't have someone over their shoulder. Um, we've worked out our telecon meetings and we actually worked out we quite like them because they save a lot of time in travel between Can in Canberra sites. So most of my staff have to travel to my office for meetings. Um, we like the fact that they don't have to because they lose half an hour either side for, for travel and parking, etc. So we've decided that we'll probably keep some of those, maybe not for every meeting, but certainly for a large number of them to give them time back in their day. Um, and I think, too, it's, uh, it's one of those things about if you understand why you're a public service, why you're a public servant and what you're trying to deliver and what you're trying to do in terms of your contribution, you can only do that through your staff. So you can't do it single-handedly. We have to, 145,000 of us have to do it together. And the ones, the 1,450 staff that I have to do it with in my corporate group, we have to do it together. So to do that, we need to be quite understanding of each other's um, issues and manage, help people manage them. And we all have, you know, our expectations of what we need to deliver. But during this period of time, um, I've actually found that people's productivity has been very good, that people have had the flexibility of working their own hours. So I haven't asked people to work between nine and five. If we've had to have a meeting at, you know, at eight o'clock at night because that suits most people, then that's what we'll do. But it's not a... Um, it's not a, a one-way game. It's it's very much a, a working as a team. So listen, as we sort of move from from one part of this, well, pretty much the, the health crisis, and it would seem, fingers crossed, that things have gone well for Australia, that we're in a very good spot. Uh, but we know that the you know the next part of the challenge comes through the impacts on society the impacts on the economy. How are you looking at that in the role that you're playing and how should we as Australians be feeling about that as we go from this transition, as we go from one to the next next part of the challenge? Yeah, so it's, it's quite interesting because we all, in the public service, we all have to determine what our new normal is because we will never go back to what we were exactly were before this all started. So for us, for example, our, um, our work profile has changed dramatically as we've had a considerable drop in, um, about 98% drop in travellers uh, coming through the system. So we've just 1.11 million people between the 1st of March and the 10th of May, which is a, a certain drop in the number of people who come through our border every, every day. The, um, but in that, in that process, we've had to relook at what our model is in the ABS and where those staff who would normally process travellers, what they move to in terms of what work they're undertaking. So a lot of work's been done in that space and those staff have been redirected to areas where we're trying to protect revenue, where we're making sure that we're picking up any revenue evasion in terms of cargo and international mail. So not only have we had to look at that sort of immediately because those staff immediately need to move into those sorts of roles and we're also processing exemptions of people who wish to travel to and from Australia uh, within the travel restrictions. So we've moved staff to those sort of new functions that we've got that didn't exist before. 
But primarily what we're looking at is what is our new operating model and how does our operating model work in conjunction with the changes that are happening in our environment, in the APS, the border Australian environment and then the global environment. So just a couple of examples of that. We've got the, the changes in travel and what that does in terms of the, uh, the border. We've got changes in expectations of government where government will go, wow, you got that app out very, very quickly during COVID-19. Can I have two of those, please? <laughs> and the expectation will be that that can be done in normal course of business. So how we harness that innovation and make sure that innovation is not um, stifled by timing and committees and all sorts of things that might not have had to have been done through the COVID-19 process where we streamlined very quickly. So there's those sorts of things. There's the issue of, you know, we have uh, like-minded partners and Five Eyes partners across the world, and each of them has experienced COVID-19 very differently to us. So we'll have to adjust and, and understand when we have partnership discussions with them about certain issues that they'll be coming from a very different place, places like the US, the UK, um, Canada, that had very different experiences uh, in the impact of COVID-19 on, on their population and on their economy. Indeed. So there is so much to, to be done. Like it, And again, that's a very quick summary of a very complicated and difficult yeah. and fast-moving uh, circumstance. How how are you going to lead your people in such a way that you can maintain that momentum and you can maintain the, the, the energy and the enthusiasm also given the, you know, the strain that was put on the public service during the response to the bushfires earlier this year? Um, so it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You have to do all of the normal good leadership and management issues and make sure your people are well rested and that they are taking breaks when they need to and that you give people some, some downtime and uh, I personally try to intrude as little as possible on weekends. So I try to keep their weekends golden so that, um, so that they actually do have the downtime and time to, time to think and breathe. Um, but the, the issue is going to be is that we won't have any space between what is COVID-19 alert phase, which is what we need to move to from the in inverted commas, catastrophic piece that we're coming out of where it could have been a whole lot worse than it is. So moving into that alert phase where we need to continue to be alert for local outbreaks and issues that might occur in the community, um, we don't have space between those um, between those issues. So it's, we're not as lucky as well, the bushfires have stopped. We've got another six months before the bushfires start again. We're actually in a COVID alert phase and we expect to be in bushfire um, season probably around end of August this year. So uh, the pressure is high for people and being able to ensure that they're well rested and managed as we move through uh, each of the phases of, is particularly important. But uh, interestingly, uh, staff uh, both at the SES, EL and the APS level are actually ready for, the, um, for what it means next. We've had a lot of conversations with staff and their they're interested and they want to know, so what are we going to do next? How do we move forward? What, what's going to change? How, what can I do? How can I contribute? So um, we do rely a lot on that enthusiasm and, again, the communication to keep that enthusiasm alive and making sure that people understand what you're doing and why, not just this is what we're doing. 
So being able to have those conversations with people and, and, and if necessary, over-communicate um, keeps people on more of an, um, of an interested level versus a disengaged level. So keeping people engaged for us is the most important thing because our staff do a tremendous job. They're um, on the front line in more ways than one, in the ABS, in the visa space, in citizenship, um, in, you know, doing doing work that uh, that many people will never know exists, but um, they do a great job and um, they deserve as much information as that I can give them about what decisions we're making. Well, Cheryl Ann Moy, thank you so much for your service and not just your service um, in your current role as Deputy Secretary at the Department of Home Affairs, but for all your service over the years, thinking back to that young girl who took an APS1 role in the Redcliffe office um, in Queensland all those years ago. So thank you so much and thank you for joining us uh, on Work With Purpose today. And to you, the audience, thank you for tuning in once more. And thanks for your ongoing support for the program. It's been um, fantastic, actually. It's been great uh, to get the level of response that we have. So thanks also to our friends and colleagues at IPA and at the Australian Public Service Commission for their ongoing support in putting the program together. Work With Purpose is part of the GovComs podcast network. And if you would like to check out the GovComs podcast, please type that name into your favourite podcast browser and I'm sure it will come up for you. And if you do happen to come across the social media promotion for the program, please share, pass it along. And if you're feeling particularly generous, maybe a rating or a review of the program and that will help us to be discovered. But for the moment, thanks again for your support. We will be back at the same time next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now. Work With Purpose is a production of Content Group in partnership with the Institute of Public Administration Australia and with the support of the Australian Public Service Commission. Music